Good morning, everyone, and welcome to a special edition of A Vision for You. Today is Sunday, October 16, 2016. The share ID for Friday, October 14, is 9171. That's 9171. This morning, A Vision for You presents Living a Life of Recovery Within the Family, Chapter 9, the family afterward. It's very often said, nothing in life brings us more joy than relationships. Yet, nothing in life challenges us more than relationships. Relationships are our ultimate challenge for the same reason that they are our ultimate joy. Relationships require growing, changing, expanding, and giving. They require actions based on unselfishness and love. Peace within relationships is easier to maintain if harmony in the family is more important than the desire to convince the other person they are wrong and we are right. This process, when sincerely engaged in, challenges every fiber of our being. The steps continue to catalyze our inner growth. The family afterward describes the many challenges and readjustments facing the family of the recovered alcoholic. There are new skills of communication and compromise to develop and new attitudes to practice. The big book stresses the importance of living by spiritual principles as a means of restoring harmony within the family. This morning, we welcome three recovered panelists to the line, Deb W. from Oklahoma, Rachel W. from New York, and Kathy S. from Maryland. Three themes within the chapter of the family afterward will be presented. Let's begin with Deb W. speaking on the theme, The Alcoholic's Past is Our Greatest Asset. Welcome to the line, Deb W. Good morning, Leah. This is Deb W. Recovered in Oklahoma. Okay, so on page 124, Henry Ford once made a wise remark uh, to the effect that experience is the thing of supreme value in life. That is true only if one is willing to turn the past to good account. We grow by our willingness to face and rectify errors and convert them into assets. The alcoholic's past thus uh, becomes the principal asset of the family and frequently it is almost the only one. This painful past may be of infinite value to other families still struggling with their problem. We think each family which has been relieved owes something to those who have not and when the occasion requires each member of it should be only too willing to bring former mistakes no matter how grievous out of their hiding places, showing others who suffer how we were to help us help is the very thing which makes life seem so worthwhile to us now. Cling to the thought that in God's hands, the dark past is the greatest possession you have, the key to life and happiness for others. With it, you can avert death and misery for them. It is possible to dig up past misdeeds so they become a blight, variable plague. For example, we know of situations in which the alcoholic or his wife has had love affairs. In the first 
flesh or a spiritual experience, they forgave each other and drew closer together. The miracle of reconciliation was at hand. Then under one provocation or the other, the aggrieved one would unearth the old affair and angrily cast its ashes about. A few of us have had these growing pains, and they have hurt a great deal. Husbands and wives have sometimes been obliged to separate for a time until new perspective, new victory over hurt pride could be re-won. In most cases, the alcoholic survived this ordeal without relapse. But not always, so we think that unless some good and useful purpose is to be served, past occurrences should not be discussed. And by the way, <laughs> I forgot I'm not on a reg I'm not a reader this morning. <laughs> and I just once I got started I just thought, well, I'll finish reading the whole thing. But what I had a few sentences out of that that I wanted to pick out and uh talk about. And one of the lines is experience is the thing of supreme value in life. And I, you know, I just wrote that me, the compulsive eater, is usually the only one in the family who has come full circle. I understand better than any family the disease and my thinking, my spiritual or emotional disconnect, if I ever had a spiritual connection, practicing the disease of compulsive eating and the how it affected my family. If we... uh if we had a better relationship before, then the gradual dissension and total pulling away from the family uh, because of compulsive eating, because we may not have even had a better relationship before that. I was aware when I was unavailable. I felt guilty, but I wanted this time to myself. I needed it. I was unreliable, unable to show up for important events for my children and my husband because of the excessive eating caused sluggishness and depression, highs and lows. I just didn't feel like being social. I had a social phobia, uh, which was an excuse that seemed to work, mostly brought on uh, by my fear of being found out, fear that someone would discover I was fat because I ate too much. I would be judged because of how much weight I had gained or how inferior I felt around other parents. I did what seemed uh I did hear what se- that what seemed to uh be death pleased for my family to lose the weight and I saw the humiliation comparing me with the other mothers and knowing I couldn't get in those cute little outfits my daughters wanted me to wear like other mothers. Embarrassed by the amount of food I inhaled, whether anybody knew about it or not, I knew. I was aware of my inability to change as much as I wanted to. My different efforts and failures, the looks in hopeful excitement from my family when I started another new plan. Husband never complaining about the amount of money I spent to get started and a disappointment, or worse yet, when they stopped believing that I ever will lose weight because they loved me and wanted me to live and be with them. And then I discover OA and what's necessary to stay out of the food. I knew the emotional ups and downs I was having while trying to maintain the emotional reprieve or the reprieve from the food while uh, working the inventory and and, and the amends a very emotional and raw period. I had many outbursts and at times uh, at them and immediately apologized. Outbursts because I am no longer turning to the food for ease and comfort. 
to take the edge off, recalling events from the past uh, that brought up an sundry of pent-up feelings. I have the full picture in the disease and out of the disease. And then the weight starts coming off. And family uh, knows it's after starting this new idea of mine. Both me and them hope that all our dreams will come about. And then I, I, know, I see their disappointments and aggravations because I'm on the phone a lot or I'm going to a lot of meetings uh, or because they so wanted to please me, they went out and bought a sugar-free cake for my birthday. Here, Mama, you can eat this. Or the husband buys sparkling grape juice to celebrate our anniversary. And can't I just have some because he wanted to, us to have a toast? I'm under pressure not only for their expectations, but because I don't want to go back to the food. And I am for the first year still having the mental twist or the suggestions or impulsive thoughts that cause me to just for a second or two to reminisce over food that would seem to give me comfort if I just had it. I also know my own expectations to be a better mother and a wife to my husband, to make everyone happy with me because this is the first time I can present myself a better human being and feel like facing the world. And working through the steps gives me the strength to no longer be ashamed of my past, to allow it to be what it was, to allow my family to bring the past up when where I fell short in hearing their stories of disappointments, able to feel the judgment, but not have to justify it or dismiss it. Instead, apologize and turn to the program to process the effect on me um, their share had. I can do a 10-step right and pray, and these intense emotions pass. The spirit that has come into my life through the steps allows me to have insight different than before. Whereas I had a remark, a hurt feeling, justified reaction, I now get the remarks, the hurt feeling, and the thought justified reaction, and many, uh, many uh, playing in my head that says, "What was my part? You know, were they valid?" Uh, making the remark, does it fit? Perhaps just like me, they are spiritually sick. A mental reminder is to practice patience, tolerance, and kindness. Going down this path of anger will offer nothing but more hurt, resentment, broken relationships. How can I resolve this another way than what I've always resolved it? Oh, I can pause. I can pray. I can wait for the direction from God. And while I wait, I think I'll do a 10-step with someone. All this in a few seconds give me other options, options on a higher plane. I believe our experiences are, for the greater part, to help others. Why would I keep what I know about my addiction or addiction of another family member other than for pride and ego? Hopefully when I hear those defects of character in the back of my mind, I can dismiss the urge to be perfect, another defect. Many times I have had the opportunity to tell about my son on drugs, having a flashback one Easter Sunday, running down the street in nothing other than red shorts, cowboy boots, head half shaved to a safe place, his friend's house, shattering their glass door because he kicked it in, or the experience of rape and producing a child. It's not my favorite conversation piece, but many times the nudge has been given when having a conversation with someone who had the same tragic experience. There is nothing more believable than sharing that I had the same experience. 
follows with, well, what did you do to survive? There, the door is open. Somebody who never compulsively ate can't understand like the one on the phone or in person that can practically tell my story exactly through his. Cling, cling to the thought that in God's hands, the dark past is the greatest possession you have, the key to life and happiness for others. With it, you can avert death and misery for them. When I talk to sponsors, I have sometimes the many prayer uh, before we talk. Father, please let me be of help to them. Please give me something to talk about. Speak through me. And the Spirit always shows up. Words come. I don't know if anyone can relate to them or not, but the ability and the courage to speak comes. I hope someone hears something they can use. Out of faith, we walk through the steps, even though we don't understand why or how they work. Out of faith, we help others, not knowing what to do as a sponsor other than what worked for us, usually starting out sponsoring exactly like our sponsor did, feeling sometimes that I just messed up somebody's life or after I hang up the phone, uh, but hearing I was helpful. Sure, things seem smoother now sponsoring because I've had a few. I know immediately to go to uh, my experience to go to when I go to my experience, I can't go wrong. I don't have another story to give. I only have the big book. It's not Debbie's formula. And if when I may slip into my opinion, I know I'm off track. My sponsor has a beautiful way of coming alongside and never really telling me what to do, but during that conversation allowing me to come to my answer, uh, own my own my own truth. And when I get off the phone thinking how much she related to me through an experience of hers that she could recall, it is, imp- it is possible to dig up past misdeeds so they become a blight, a variable plague. So we think that unless some good and useful purpose is to be served, past occurrences should not be discussed. I once talked with a member who had spent a beautiful weekend with a, a high school friend. They had laughed and enjoyed each other, unlike they had been able to because they hadn't been around each other in years. Then she had a thought to confess uh, that previously she had flirted with her her husband. She just wanted to come clean. She had been carrying the guilt of her misdeeds and wanted to not have anything between them. I remembered this passage in the big book and suggested she talk with her sponsor. What was the reason behind picking this particular time to tell this woman about the misdeed? Was it for her own relief, and what could it produce? What was sharing this going to accomplish or break down? I think in the end, she decided not to open that bag of worms. So with that, I pass. Thank you. Thank you very much, Deb W., And now let's transition to Rachel W. from New York. Her theme, the home has suffered more than anything else. Good morning, Leah. Can I be heard? Yes, thank you. Excellent. Okay, great. Good morning, and thank you so much for this opportunity to come on the line today. And um, The area I'm focusing on is in the chapter, The Family Afterward, and the paragraph says, Since the home has suffered more than anything else, it is well that a man exert himself there. He is not likely to get far in any direction if he fails to show unselfishness and love under his own roof. We know there are difficult wives and families, but the man who is getting over alcoholism 
must remember he did much to make them so. And, you know, this, this illustrates, once again, perhaps the most important part of the program for me, which was the biggest lesson I had to learn, that um, my issue really wasn't about the food. My, my issue with food addiction wasn't really about the food necessarily. It was really more so a spiritual and emotional malady that wreaks havoc on my response to life if it's left unchecked. And, um, you know, it's the mo- emotional and spiritual parts that present the biggest challenge and need to be aligned in a step to keep me abstinent. And since I came into the program in 1999, I've experienced abstinence, relapse in a seven-year span in which I kept off 100 pounds. And then three years ago, I fell into a relapse. And two years ago, I became abstinent. And last year, celebrating my first year of food sobriety, my sponsor quickly pointed out that the real work of emotional sobriety was just getting started. And I'm going to talk about this now because it's such an integral part of my family relationships and all my relationships. And my exploration into this level of emotional sobriety was forced into action when I discovered that my usual 10-step process wasn't working on my immediate family as it was on other people. So with other people, I would go through a 10 step and I would land with a new perspective, but this wasn't happening as much with my family. And sometimes I found myself triggered by people I hardly knew and my usual inventory process wasn't working. So there was something much deeper going on and I didn't know what. And I also noticed a trend. And very often I would speak to people who would call me for help in untangling a 10 step issue um, that couldn't be resolved after two or three attempts. And without fail in each situation, the 10 step involved a family member. Um, I know there was once a woman called me, this is, this was when I really figured out like something deeper was going on here, that a woman called me regarding an issue with her mother that she tried continually to explore through the 10 step process, but could not get to the other side. And I knew right away that most likely she was being triggered by a very old emotional wound that needed to be acknowledged. And, and then another thing I found fascinating that was going on for me was, um, about my 10 stepping was that I was reaching for it like I used to reach for Reese's peanut butter cups. You know, in my food addiction, I was reaching for my binge foods to numb uncomfortable feelings. And in recovery, I was reaching just as quickly for a 10-step before I had the chance to really feel what was going on. And either method prevents me from feeling what I need to feel, the agitation that God and the universe is sending me, calling upon me to grow, and I'm just not wanting to do that. And, and I know there's a lot of you on the line who can relate to the fact that growth is a messy, uncomfortable process. And there's three different, um, three, three examples that I think about that I think I got them on the line that um, really illustrate the growth process that in, in a really good way. And the first thing is a seed, how it disintegrates, it's planted, it disintegrates, and then it emerges as an entirely new, vibrant life form. And the second is a lobster that's a soft, mushy animal that lives inside a rigid shell that doesn't expand, but ultimately this shell is confining and the lobster feels like it's under pressure and uncomfortable and it goes under a rock, it goes away from predators, and then it, it sheds that shell and produces a new one. But the stimulus for the lobster to grow is that it feels uncomfortable. And the third one is a butterfly, how it squeezes and pushes itself out of the cocoon and as it does that, the fluid, there's fluid that infuses its wings with the ability to fly. So anyone who would think that the compassionate thing would be to stop the uncomfortability of these processes would be killing the potential for growth. And I came to revisit that pause that got me abstinent and learn to do that with my emotions and sit with my feelings in my relationships. So I can 
for the moment, you know, pause and check in. I'm not talking about morbid reflection, just a check in with myself to determine what I'm feeling. I can sit with the feeling and determine the root of it and then use a 10 step pro- to process it. Um, the reason I'm mentioning uh, emotional sobriety is because I've used this aspect to more clearly understand my response to the entire world and especially my family. And I discovered that much of what I was bringing into my relationships were childhood responses and things I had learned in childhood. Um, in Bill W.'s in-depth true self inventory, Bill in a letter to a friend wrote about deepening AA's moral inventory to focus on what he called psychic damage Quote, it may be that someday we shall devise some common denominator of psychiatry, of course, throwing away their much abused terminology, common denominators which neurotics could use on each other. The idea would be to extend the moral inventory of AA to a deeper level, making it an inventory of psychic damages, reliving in conversation episodes, etc. I suppose someday a neurotics anonymous will be formed and will actually do all this. He later suggests the inventory be about actual episodes, inferiority, shame, guilt, anger, so they could be relived in the mind and their power reduced. The true non-neurotic self could then emerge out of hiding. And this is from the soul of sponsorship, Hazleton, and also the adult child of alcoholics and dysfunctional families fellowship text. And I, I see here the importance of acknowledging my feelings and tracing their source, which for me was right back into my childhood most of the time. And, um, and he's also saying here that we could have an inventory where, where we actually relive episodes and by doing it, the trigger of that emotion, the power of it is reduced. And in coming to heal myself from the food addiction, I stumbled upon adult children of alcoholics and dysfunctional families, which brought me tools in their own 12-step process that's patterned after Alcoholics Anonymous. And that has greatly assisted my recovery and the healing process in my family. And in these texts and in other writings, Bill implores us to descend into an even greater awareness of ourselves. And I think it's safe to say that most homes have within them some sort of dysfunction. And I discovered that I carried this dysfunction from my childhood into every relationship. On page 127, as we read, it says that the home has suffered more than anything else. And this is true because I grew up with untreated addiction in my home and it affected my response to life. Um, And the purpose in revisiting these emotions briefly isn't to sit in blame in my, of my parents or marinate in the feelings, but rather to experience them so they no longer remain untapped and unleashed and no longer have the same potential to wreak havoc on the family and in any other arena of my, of my life. Um, and I've read also that denial fosters a lack of clarity. It's the glue that allows the disease of family dysfunction to thrive. Cloaked in denial, the disease is passed on to the next generation with amazing consistency. So denial was an integral part of survival. The problem was, however, that over the years, I used that same denial regarding myself and my relationships. I denied that eating more food would make me obese. I denied that I was checking out as a wife and mother when I binged. I denied that I wanted to control everyone. And I denied that I wanted everyone to validate me. Um, I just remember at this time, my children's accomplishments were not their own. They meant that I could accomplish just as much as my uh, children's failures meant that I could fail. I, I was a failure as a parent. And on page 30 in the AA Big Book, we're told the delusion that we are like other people or presently maybe has to be smashed. And this is presented as the first step of recovery, the smashing of denial, the smashing of delusions 
you know, the denial that, that my actions while in the throes of addiction had no effect on anyone else but me, you know, sitting in those dark parking lots or having those private moments of binging, thinking I'm not hurting anybody when really I was hurting everyone, you know, leaning into the steps gives me the ability to not only face the consequences of my disease on my home, but also to recover into a miraculously meaningful and purposeful life with my family. Um, just want to say also discovering and implementing this part of my program has transformed all of my relationships and mostly my marriage and my relationships with my children. All of my children know me as an OAer. And my older ones know me more as the mother who became abstinent and worked the steps to the best of my ability at that time. And my younger children also have an abstinent mother, but all my children now have a mother who is far more alert to their needs and especially their need to accomplish and fail and learn from their own experiences without me interrupting their growth process. Um, I've, I've landed in a designed for a living that focuses on being of service to my children and not out of demanding something from them in some way. Um, and very often when I read about sponsorship in the big book, I do apply this to my own family. And um, in his renowned article in the grapevine in 1958, Bill writes, in the first six months of my own sobriety, I worked hard with many alcoholics. Not a one responded. Yet this work kept me sober. It wasn't a question of those alcoholics giving me anything. My stability came out of trying to give, not out of demanding that I receive. Thus, I think it can work out with emotional sobriety. If we examine every disturbance we have, great or small, we will find at the root of it some unhealthy dependency and its consequence a consequent unhealthy demand. Let us, with God's help, continually surrender these hobbling demands. Then we can be set free to live in love. We may then be able to 12-step ourselves and others into emotional sobriety. So I know I transferred a legacy of dysfunction into my home at some level, but now I'm turning the tide and conveying the message that there is a way out. And more than this, I can fully appreciate the importance of laughter with my children and spending quality time with my family, having fun and nurturing my own inner joy so I can transmit it into my home. I don't wish this disease of addiction on anyone, but sometimes I do wonder about one of my descendants struggling with addiction in 100 years from now, discovering my tattered big book with all my yellow highlights and markings and finding the solution to their malady. In Acceptance is the Answer, Dr. Paulo tells us about the transformation of his relationship with his wife, Max, and anyone who wants to read about what this program can do to a marriage or relationship should read pages 417 to 419. And he talks about a new pair of glasses, and it's so true, because in this recovery process, I found that I was projecting fear and other emotions onto my husband, and I learned um, how to observe myself when I do this, how to stop and consider whether my issue involves a projection as a result of some unhealthy dependency, as Bill describes, like codependency, expecting an unhealthy demand, like being externally validated. In my best moment, I pause, consider this in the light of what I need to say, and then communicate it in a way where my message comes out purely and clearly without emotion or other triggers. This has greatly helped our communication in general, and after almost 27 years of marriage, we're sometimes seeing each other as if for the very first time. And I'd like to end off with three meditations that are helpful in our focus on the family afterwards. The first one is from For Today, the Overeaters Anonymous text on December 16th. You may strive to be like your children, but seek not to make them like you, from Khalil Gibran. 
One of the highest goals I can set for myself is to be as a child. Everything good that happens is a result of allowing myself to be open to every possibility, every secret nuance of the natural world. To seek to burden a child with the artifices and trappings of the adult mind, on the other hand, is both foolish and oppressive. To live the long, wonderful days of childhood is a God-given birthright, and child's play is a most serious and necessary occupation. It is a sad injustice to infringe upon an already too short childhood with heavy schedules and inflexible routines that conform to adult standards of appropriate activity. For today, the freedom to be themselves is as necessary for my children as it is for me. And here's another one from the information box. I model healthy behavior for my children. As a parent, I am participating in my child's gradual self-discovery. My goal is not to make my child into something. My aim is to teach skills necessary to live a full and productive life. Today, I will inventory my parenting skills and become aware of my behavior. Does my own troubled childhood lead me to suffocate and overprotect? Do I expect perfection and become critical and shaming with my own children? How often do I listen to my own voice? only to realize that it is an echo of my alcoholic parent. In my haste to flee my family, I may have brought some uninvited guests. I have the opportunity to model acceptance, firmness, and self-esteem for my children. What a gift I have to give. My children will reflect what they have been taught, and a generation free from destructive behavior will emerge. And the last meditation I'm going to end off with, this is from the Alcoholics Anonymous 24 hours a day. The date here is October 29th. My relationships with my children have greatly improved. Those children who saw me drunk and were ashamed, those children who turned away in fear and even loathing, have seen me sober and like me, have turned to me in confidence and trust and have forgotten the past as best they could. They have given me a chance for companionship that I had completely missed. I am their father or their mother now, not just that person that mom or dad married and God knows why. I am a part of my home now. Have I found something that I had lost? The meditation for the day. Our true measure of success in life is a measure of spiritual progress that we have revealed in our lives. Others should be able to see a demonstration of God's will in our lives. The measure of his will that those around us have seen worked out in our daily living is the measure of our true success. We can do our best to be a demonstration each day of the power of God in human lives, an example of the working out of the grace of God in the hearts of men and women. The prayer for today. I pray that I may live so that others will see in me something of the working out of the will of God. I pray that my life may be a demonstration of what the grace of God can do. And with that, I pass. Thank you very much, Rachel W. And now we'll move on to our third and final panelist, Kathy S., who's focusing on the theme, We Aren't a Glum Lot. Welcome, Kathy S. Oh, good morning, Leah. Thank you. Um, well, uh, let's turn to, if you've got your big book, you can turn to page 132, and I'm going to read a little bit from there, and then we'll start tearing this thing apart. Um, we've been speaking, speaking of you of serious, sometimes tragic things. We've been dealing with alcohol in its worst, worst aspect, but we aren't a glum lot. If new, newcomers could see no joy or fun in our existence, they wouldn't want it. We absolutely insist on enjoying life. We try not to indulge in cynicism over the state of the nations, nor do we carry the world's troubles on our shoulders. 
and we see a man sinking into the mire that is of alcoholism, we give him first aid and place what we have at his disposal. For his sake, we do not recount and almost relive the horrors of the past, or we do. But those of us who have tried to shoulder the entire burden and trouble of others find we are soon overcome by them. So we think cheerfulness and laughter makes for usefulness. Outsiders are sometimes shocked when we burst into merriment over a seemingly tragic experience out of the past. But why shouldn't we laugh? We have recovered and have been given the power to help others. What an amazing, powerful two paragraphs that is. We are we are a lot, and that is that is really the key. But why? Well, the real critical is why why would we work this program if there's no joy or fun in their existence? Why would anybody even want to join us? Indulging in an amazing meal was not what I did. I was an addict. I had to feed the beast of addiction, and nothing stood between me and my addiction. God help you if you tried. I was like a caged lion released from a cage. The first people I attacked was my family. They were such easy targets, and I took aim and shot. Today, I deliver a very different message. I abide by the sentence. We absolutely insist on enjoying life. No matter what I am dealing with, it is critical. I search for the silver lining and grab hold of it and exploit it. This past year has been especially trying. Um, My son um, has had some health mental health issues that were way beyond my control. Um, We've had some other issues come up in our family, but in each and every situation, it is trying to find that silver lining, learn from it, grow from it. If I focus on the good, the good gets better. If I focus on the bad, the bad gets even larger. And here is another one. We should not try to carry the world's troubles on our shoulders, nor do we carry the world's um, nor do we we indulge in the cynicism over the state of the nation. With the current during this current political cycle going on in our country, I've had to tune it out. I can't change what is going on, but I can change what is going in my ears and what I view. My tuning out the political drumbeat that has seized this country is not that I don't care. It is understanding my limitations in putting my recovery first. But how did I get there? First and foremost, it has been a tremendous amount of hard work by putting my recovery first and foremost along the way. Along the way, I've developed some bumpers, just like you would have in a bowling alley when someone's learning how to bowl, to add to my life that assists me in navigating my life, especially with my family. First and foremost, there are places that I just don't go. There are many situations I should go, but maybe it's a bad idea in my career or it would be hurtful or disappointing to someone if I didn't go. But those can be compelling, those, those, and those can be compelling reasons to show up, um, but I don't have to go. If I find myself with a situation where it is not somewhere I can be and come out of it recovered, it is a place that at this point in time is not a place that I um, embark upon. I am not trapped, and I can change my mind anytime I need to. If I, I can turn my car around on the way to the airport to head to safer ground by, by t- taking the hurricane route to recovery, I don't have to stick with the decision. I can always change it. And if you're like me, a real addict, and your life is on the line, 
and though we are prone to drama and selfish decisions, it's often better to stay with my plan of eating and my abstinence and after the fact determine that I may have been overly sensitive and dramatic, which often is a very real possibility, than to force myself to go somewhere on a slippery slope when I'm feeling frightened, resentful, and trapped, and then relapsed. And one of the benchmarks I always keep to keep playing in my head is I need to remember that my addictions are and always trying to kill me, and they will succeed if I give them the power to do so. With regard to leaving a situation at any time, I can leave in the middle of a sentence, um, middle of cutting cake. I can leave without drama, without a scene. I just excuse myself and leave. I adopt my husband's favorite line, whoa, look at the time, got to go, followed by an indisputable addition I may or may not want to add and walk away. I can just say I steadily feel ill and need to step out. It's not even a falsehood. Although it may mean emotionally or spiritually ill, and others may think the dinner didn't agree with me. It is better for me to leave quietly and stay abstinent than remain in an event and relapse, because if I relapse, then most likely will wish I had left, because the evil witch of addiction will immense from me. You can leave with a fork halfway to your mouth before you take that compulsive bite if you have to. But once the fork is in the mouth, you've entered into a whole new realm of problems. Here's another one I can always, I always remind myself as well. I can leave the situation and return. That is why there's doors on bathrooms. In there, I can regroup and ground myself in recovery. Leaving in that bathroom, I've made many a phone call, pulled up my iPhone, and pulled out my favorite quips and quotes um, to get myself back in the game, get my head thrown on straight. Leaving doesn't mean leaving the whole event and going home or back to the hotel. Sometimes it's just going out for a walk, getting some air, sitting in the car and screaming, although I've gotten many a funny look for that. And once I've gotten my equilibrium back, re-entering the vent. And if I do choose to return, I have an exit plan in my back pocket if I need it. Remember, a good offense always starts with a good defense. I always need to change my expectation. I cannot expect program response from people who are not in the program. I have one uncle who works in program of recovery, very strong program, and he is the one person who does give me program responses to things, and I chuckle to myself because no one else is catching on to the joke. However, the rest of the group, whether they may or may not benefit from a 12-step program, don't live that life, and nor am I, my will going to be imposed on them to give them, to, to force them to. Um, recovery flushes you with a whole new language to identify how you feel and communicate. I need to remember always that the family dinner table is not a 12-step meeting. And you, if you start, quote, unquote, sharing rather than talking to others, you may be felt, heard, they may respond with, that's the stupidest thing I ever heard. Or worse yet, in my book, patronizing smiles that are equivalent of a pat, pat on the head. It's just, Isn't that nice, dear? Don't expect people who are in a, aren't in a 12-step program to act like people in the 12, 12-step program. What is the key? Expect. Expectations of family are some of the deepest, deepest and often the least conscious and most least expectations we addicts can have. If your family has been snarky in the past, 
they probably are going to be snarky in the future. But at least you know what you're dealing with. It's always better to know the lay of the land than to walk in thinking all of a sudden you're walking into the Rich Carlton when you're really walking into a dump. Yes, it's a high bar to stare, clear, an impossible bar, clear in fact, to act absolutely no expectations of people. But by doing so, we can enjoy life, not develop a list of resentments about life, and then move on to doing another fourth step. Then they're done it, don't need to build another one. And speaking of resentments, what do I do with them when I have them? I write them down on paper. No one is going to celebrate Festivus with me. If anybody remembers the old Seinfeld episode where um, George's dad was going to celebrate Festivus, and part of the celebration was the dinner, and we went around and had the airing of the grievances. Life is not the airing of the grievances. It is about bringing recovery to all I think, say, and do. My walk and my talk and my thoughts all need to align, and they all need to align with recovery. Love and tolerance is our code, which is on the page, bottom of page 130, 132. It goes on, and I'm, I'm sorry, love and tolerance is our code, which is basically our motto, but on the bottom of page 132, it states, cheerfulness and laughter make for usefulness. If my, if my family or my boss or whoever I come in contact with could do better, they would. For particular challenging people, try to consider that it is much worse to, to be them than to deal with them. Who wants to be somebody who is angry and frustrated and just just hurtful? Because when they're lashing out at others, it reminds me so closely in the question I ask, but for the grace of God go I, because that is where I used to live. I need to keep it at the forefront of my mind that those around me that are behaving this way are typically very spiritually sick themselves, and they deserve my compassion, just as I would treat anybody else who is sick and feeling upset, angered, frustrated, and that be tolerant with them, be patient with them, and be kind with them. And most, what it does happen is, as my recovery continues to grow and and take over our family and our family and those around me, miracles happen. We we have we have in the big book it states very clearly, we who have recovered are given the power to help others. Damaged relationships heal, wounded parties forgive, shattered families do come back together. It doesn't happen the way we envision, or a clever soundtrack with excellent lighting as your favorite independent film, but it truly does happen. Life, in some ways, is also like a snow globe. We shake it up, the snow swirls around, and the snow falls back down. But the snow isn't exactly where it was before. Does it, is it any less beautiful? No. It is just truly different, and that difference is okay. It. I also need to always remind myself, it is not my family's job to understand compulsive eating or over, uh, Overeaters Anonymous. It is mine. OA is truly a design for living, which that means in the real world is that other people's behavior does not dictate my behavior. Let me say that one more time. Other people's behavior does not dictate my behavior. 
You can't make me yell or behave badly. Only I can do that. I am not in format, but I do have to go every to, I don't have to go to every fight I'm invited to either. Don't you love that? I don't have to go to every fight I'm invited to. A smile and shrug is an excellent way for excellent strategy for quietly deflecting things. And at that point, sometimes it's time to invoke the line. Whoa, look at the time. Got to go. And I always need to remember, and this is very, very important, I am very fortunate. Every situation I enter into, every thought I have, every action I take, I bring my higher power with me. I'm never alone. It is possible also that when you're listening to someone while they are going off, you can actually be looking quite intently and be saying the serenity prayer over and over in your head. Or you can just cut it short and say, bless them, change me. Practice it in the mirror. You'll get really good at this. And please remember what is summed up on the bottom of page 135. First things first, live and let live, and easy does it. If we go to the top of page 133, it states, we are sure God wants us to be happy and joyous and free. We cannot subscribe to the belief that this life is a veil of tears, though it once was just that for many of us. But it is clear that God made our own misery, that we made our own misery. God didn't do it. Avoid then the deliberate manufacturer of misery. But if trouble comes, cheerfully capitalize as an opportunity to demonstrate his omnipotence. And with that, I pass. Thank you very much, Kathy S. Thank you to our three panelists this morning for illuminating aspects of Chapter 9, The Family Afterward, through your personal experience and your insights. Thank you for your service. The contact information for our panelists will be given at the conclusion of this recording, so please stay tuned for that. We will now transition to questions. And if you have a question for any of our panelists, please press star 1 to unmute and identify yourself. This is Laura G. Laura G. Okay, anyone else? Amanda R. Amanda R. And this is Mia. I didn't catch your name. I'm sorry. That's okay. Mia, M-I-A. Mia. Okay, wonderful. Let's start with Laura G., please. Thanks. Good morning. This is Laura G. from California, compulsive overeater. Oh, no, I'm going to say learning to be recovered, compulsive overeater. Um, I have two, more than two days abstinent from sugar. Um, I was thinking on the last speaker, Kathy, um, if I'm correct with the name, um, the all the all the uh, metaphors you used and all the uh, things you said, and especially the husband's uh, favorite um, um, statement, just like all the other things we learn in uh, in the big book, all that stuff takes time. And you had it sounds like you have so much uh, strength in those um, things to help you out of bad situations or situations that. Uh, can become dangerous. So I was wondering, like, uh, how long did you realize always from the beginning that this is the way your mind works? Because it sounds like a mind 
uh, exercise. And uh, if so, um, just like all the other things, it took time to get there, right? That's my question. I hope it's clear. Thank you. Um, Mia, um, this is Kathy. Um, thank, can you hear me? Yes. Okay, great. I'm sorry. Um, listen, um, first off, congratulations on your first two days of um, sugar-free, the, the first 21 days of the hardest. And if you can make it one day, remember you can make it two. And sometimes it's just an hour at a time. Um, with regard to how did I get here, um, the biggest thing was was I um, I realized I – I needed to jump on the train of recovery, and knowing myself, I knew that if I was bouncing off the, up and down off the relapse and abstinence, I would leave and never come back. It's just my nature. I tend to be black and white about a lot of things, which OA has taught me life is really shades of gray. Not the book, but, you know, it's a spectrum. And um, what I started doing was modeling my behavior after people who had recovery that I wanted. They were happy. They were. They lived the life kind of like I did. They had kids. And yet somehow they figured out a way to make recovery a priority and have an amazing life. And that was first and foremost. And what I saw them do more than anything else was my addict mind wanted to make this program as complicated as possible. I wanted to, I immediately jumped to the chapter um, um, what is this, how you do it, um, because I figured, well, the rest of it's garbage. We'll just get giving up some bolts. But then I realized they weren't doing that. They started at the beginning, and they took it one step at a time. And that's what I learned very easily is I had to break this down and make this program of recovery as simple as possible so that I could do it day in, day out. And just like the, the simple prayer, bless them, change me, that really is the theme of the 12 steps. I need to be a blessing to those around me, but when it comes down to it, I need to change me. That is the only person I have recovery to. And I, I did a lot of things that were kind of goofy. Sometimes you had the book, um, you know, like the AA Daily Reflections and, you know, there's an OA one. There's a bunch of them out there. I would read the daily passage and I'd play a game with myself. I only read today on today. If you missed it, you had to wait till next year. But when I read it, I had to find some phrase in it that meant something to me. And if I couldn't find something, I read it till I did. And it was just simple things. But it was but doing that changed the way I was thinking so that I could live a life for recovery. And and I think that's the thing is you've got to make a commitment to change and then you've got to make a commitment to make keeping it as simple as possible and working your 12 steps with, with the utmost um, vigor. And with that, I'll pass. Thank you, Laura G., for your question. Amanda R. Hello. Oh. There, I got my phone fixed up. Hi, this is Amanda R. I'm a recovered compulsive overeater from Maine. And I had a a question for the second speaker. I, I'm terribly bad with names. I know it began with an R. <laughs> um, and I, I think it's Rachel. Um, I'm sorry if that's wrong. I was curious if you could come up with an example um, without, you know, getting too personal and, you know, don't want to make you uncomfortable, but it's an example of 
what you uh, talked about in terms of going, sort of sitting for a moment before the 10th step and and figuring out what's going on uh, a little bit deeper down. I, I find I remember and learn best from examples. So thank you. Okay, thank you for the question. And it is Rachel, uh, Rachel W. Um, well, I found over time that, for example, when I would do a fear inventory, or I, I would have, I would experience fear. Um, I, I saw that the fear was more than just about whatever the situation was. And for example, um, regarding a work situation, or let's say, you know, a, a meeting, uh, maybe I'll just use this. I, I, I had to prepare for a meeting and, um, and I was giving a presentation and um, I was afraid. I had this like fear that was more than just a normal fear. And it was of someone who really was a really nice person. <laughs> and there was no evidence that I needed to be that afraid of her. You know, she, she was a, she is a nice person. I work extremely well with her. Um, there was no reason to be so afraid of her. Um, and I found myself, you know, uh, I was, uh, you know, I do have this perfectionism thing going, which is such a, a, um, it's a barrier to, to success, you know, to, to be able to just do and to risk failure. You know, I, I do struggle with that. So I found myself caught in the fear of, of her, you know, not thinking it's good enough or the criticism that she would, she would give and then, you know, paralyzed in such a way that I wasn't even working on my presentation. And I, I just, you know, I was over a few days, I knew I needed to work on it, but I, I, I just was stuck, you know, and then finally I, I, I caught myself and realized I was doing this. And then I sat and, and, you know, did it, worked it through the 10 step understanding that, this this fear really had nothing to do with this woman that I needed to present to. And it had everything to do with um, a, a childhood reaction, meaning in my childhood that um, situations that I, 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 I lived in terror, you know, I lived in a great fear. So um, I was responding here, that fear from childhood, I was still using it as a response in my adult life and it was paralyzing my own success. And um, so once I clarified that for myself and I just realized that it, 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 you know, it's about placing my trust in God and it's about really, you know, saying the fear prayer, asking God for a new direction. But sometimes for me, that really wasn't working. I was still ending up in fear again and again, but until I, I could sit with the fact that, oh, I get it, right. This is probably where that's coming from. And my new reality today is I'm not, I don't have to respond like that anymore. You know, I can let that go. It's an, it's an old thing. It's an old method of living that I can really let go of. And in the end, um, I, you know, I did prepare it. Um, I gave it over and it was fine. And everything went wonderfully, thank God. And I, um, I hope that's a good example, but um, so it's, you know, the, again, my, I would just say for me that 
I noticed that my fear was illogical. You know, I would be in situations where I would be fearful and it was just totally illogical. Um, and that's, that's how I came out of that, out of that. I hope that was clear. Thank you for the question. Thank you very much, Amanda R. Mia, your turn. Hi, thank you. This is Mia, recovering from compulsive overeating in Ohio. And my question is also for Rachel W. Um, You had a quote of Bill W. saying something about maybe one day Neurotics Anonymous will start up. And I was wondering the source of that quote again i know you said it but i wasn't able to catch it oh yes um okay well the the main the main source is the um the aca fellowship text the adult children of alcoholics fellowship text in there it it talks about it's the letters with commentary reprinted fitzgerald r from 1995 and it's also in the soul of sponsorship by hazelton um, and I just have to tell you this joke. <laughs> there was there was this commercial I saw years ago, and and um, I think it was for Geico. And the guy's at an anonymous meeting, you know, and he says, "Hi, I'm." It's the Compulsive Liars Anonymous, and he says, "Hi, um, hi, my name's Joe, and I'm a compulsive liar." And then everyone screams back at him, "You're lying!" You know, I just love that joke. But anyway, um, <laughs> when I heard about yeah, this Neurotics Anonymous, that's where it, that's the source of it. Thank you. Thanks. Thank you, Mia. Who else has a question for our panelists this morning? Press star one to Wayne. unmute to identify yourself. Wayne. Wayne C. Sorry. Wayne C. Anyone else? Great opportunity to present questions to our panelists. Okay, well, Wayne C., go right ahead. Yes, um, it's for Rachel W. Um, Rachel, I was curious about your thoughts around, um, you know, the, the the real deal of, you know, a term that you didn't use, uh, but maybe, you know, ACOA uses center child sort of work, this codependency <laughs> stuff versus you know, the 12 steps and, you know, the OA approach, you know, and, and when would, you know, acknowledging or just assuming that that work is significant, you know, that, that uh, inner child or uh, codependency, and again, I'm not putting words in your mouth, but, you know, that bigger sort of, you know, family triggers, deep, deep digging type of stuff, when would that be um, ideal to introduce into one's life, Um you know, is it you know a year of absence, five years of absence? Any thoughts on that? Thank you. Um, thank you for the question. Can I just ask how long? What your are you? How long have you been in program? Are you absent now? Yes, yes, and uh, but I've also just been the recipient of uh, somebody who you know another another recovery program five years ago, you know, sponsor immediately. Oh, that's a CODA issue. And I, I hadn't heard of CODA in my life. And he says, you need to go to CODA. Oh, that's an Al-Anon issue. And the next thing you know, <laughs> program and, and just getting absolutely diluted and confused. So that's sort of the context. Uh, 
where I'm coming from. But yeah. I'm doing well in, in a way, thank God. But I, I actually yet to move into step four. Hopefully that will begin by, by this time next week. Awesome. Good for you. That's amazing. Well, I'll tell you briefly, I mentioned I came out of a relapse. This meeting was the direct result of that. Um, I used to listen to this meeting with donut crumbs on my chin thinking, wow, they really are making a lot of sense and just, you know, continually piling more donuts. And, and what, what attracted me, and I've been in OA for many years, but what attracted me here was this really, you know, pure approach straight out of the big book from the source the 12 steps laid out clearly and precisely the directions every single day dissected and explored. And, you know, I think it's only a natural domino effect that when the steps are, are learned like this, you know, as we do here on the line, um, it will have a domino effect no matter what program you're in. Um, You know, I, I I found that for myself, you know, the, um, I don't look at it as, an OA approach or this approach or I, I look at it like the 12 steps, the, the, the credits do transfer, you know, to any, I mean, any addiction. I, I know that the, the steps, the, the way that um, they're worked here on the line, I've used the steps, um, you know, to, to I, I use them to, for any un- unmanageability in my life, whether it's food, whether it's other issues, whether it's people, you know, um, I've used the set aside prayer a lot, you know, in terms of my relationships, but I think that for the most part, it's, it's really important to have a source like we are, I can't even explain to you the blessing that, I mean, I probably, you get, you understand what I mean, but the blessing that this meeting is to me, because it get, does give me that undiluted message of the 12 steps. And um, so no matter where I go or what, program I'm, I'm considering or it's just transferring over because honestly I have never heard the big book or steps presented in this way the way we do it here you know re- regarding food addiction like you know, I just I don't think I've ever heard it um, and it could be it's out there I just never came across it so what I would say to you is two things first of all like again the, the steps are the steps <laughs> they they are, they're, they're a process that, that apply, can apply to any unmanageability. And I would also say that this is an extremely, you know, as much as we identify in with the problem and we have this incredible fellowship that we can count on and be a part of and ultimately give back to. And, and it's so, it's like a lifeline, but ultimately it's such an extremely personal process. You know, it's, it, you know, at the end of time, it's my life that'll flash before my eyes. Nobody else's, you know. And I think that's extremely crucial, you know, to keep to keep uh, to keep that in mind. That um, you know, if you're in a fellowship and it requires a, a, an abstinence, then yes, you know, you have to be, you have to, well, you know, you basically have to all be abstinent, or you have to all be in that same place of working on that issue. But for the most part, it's it's a very personal process and as far as the confusion goes you know i just say to start you're you're in a good place right here um start here and see see what happens but i'm not telling you what to do i'm just saying just to just to find your own way and and pray about it sit about it sit quietly about it um these decisions thank god don't have to be made in one day you know 
So thank you. I hope that was clear. Yes, my name is Rita. I have a question. Thank you, Wayne. See, Rita, I hear you. One moment. Yes. Rita, one moment, please. Anyone else have questions this morning for our panelists? Nancy R. Nancy R. Anyone else? Okay, let's start with Rita, please. Mary R. in Oregon. I didn't catch you, Oregon. Your name? <laughs> Mary Lee R. Mary Lee. Thank you. Okay, Rita, please go ahead. Thank you. And I asked this question because it is so apropos to the family afterwards. Um, my name is Rita. I've been in recovery, um, uh, you know, all my adult life, it seems. Um, and my daughter's 20 years old. She was always in a right size body. And now that she's 20, she's gained a massive amount of weight over the summer. And I have never said anything to her about her weight, but I'm feeling very guilty that I have somehow contributed to this. I wouldn't wish this food addiction on anybody. And right now I'm struggling whether to say something to my daughter, like if she wants help or, you know, I just don't know how to help her or if helping or by staying quiet and being abstinent is the only thing I can do. I would like some feedback on that if anybody has any um, thoughts on that. It would really help me. Thank you. Panelists, who would like to respond to Rita's question? Um, this is Kathy. I have a quick response. Please, go ahead. Um, sometimes, um, and, and this is kind of um, um, my experience with my children, is if they've all of a sudden made a 180-degree turn into something you've never seen before, I would really ask them, are you okay? And and you've got to be careful asking. I wouldn't reference the weight, but you may just say, hey, you seem off. You don't seem your usual self. And and if they, especially even your that, you don't seem happy. Because it could be something else's trauma has happened in their life that has caused this behavior to come about and and, and work to open the door of communication. And, and you know, read the water, be be gentle, um, and it, it could be something else has happened and they're turning to the food as a pickup point. And when I look back at what has happened with our son, there were many junctures that I look back. I wish I had been a little bit step forward quicker. And, you, you know, it's difficult when you're dealing with older teenage children. They, you know, they're, they're adults, you know, and you've got to give them the freedom to be an adult, you know, and it's just like dealing with a sponsor. You've got to give them the ability to make their choices in their program of recovery. But yet I think it's okay to ask a question periodically and, you know, be gentle about it. If, you know, you ask the initial question and they just immediately pull back and, you know, come back, circle back later. So I, I think, you know, but don't be afraid to walk away. You know, be, be, don't be afraid to be be their mom. And, and, and if they don't want to talk, just say, hey, I'm here for you. And t let me know, you know, when you want to talk, I'm here. So, Thank you very much. Thank you, Rita. Nancy R. Hi, good morning. I'm Nancy R., recover compulsive reader. 
I'd like to thank the panelists for their wonderful contribution this morning. Thank you for your service, Leah. My question is for Deb W. Uh, she mentioned uh, the, the resentment about the, uh, her family's resentments about the amount of time she spends on the telephone. I'd like for her to address how she deals with that. Thank you. Okay, this is Deb W. Um, <clears throat> I think when I first started the program, <clears throat> it's when I had more difficulties. Now, you know, I've been in program, I had three-year relapse, but had been in program for uh, since 89. So they pretty well have grown up and gone away or pretty well, um, <clears throat> you know, have accepted. That's just a part of me. But one thing I, I remember having to realize is that this was a problem. It was a real disease. It is, a you know, something I can't or haven't been able to get out of unless I work this program. This is the first time that I ever kind of feel like a, felt like a normal eater again through this program. So I remember having to make a decision whether they were upset or not. I remember my husband and I had an argument one time, and he got all the OA literature and put it in the trunk of the car. <laughs> and I didn't know where it was. And him, that's him saying, I don't like this person you're being, you know. But as long as I am being, you know, I talk to people all the time, and they really struggle with trying to please their family and please their spouses uh, as far as the, the program is concerned, the time that it takes. And I think that even though we have to have balance, the bottom line got to be where I knew I had to save myself. There is no way I could be anything for anybody until I got out of the food. So, you know, it's a it's a question that you know I think we have to ask ourselves. You know, is this which thing can I do? They actually struggle back and forth because you know it's it's a it's a big thing to say. No matter what, I I got to stay in this program. No matter whether you like it or not, as long as I'm being respectful. And I think at one point they realized I wasn't going to change. That I was going to continue. Uh, down this road, and so they they learned to accept it. So you know, I had certain times that I took phone calls. I tried not to interrupt dinner with phone calls, but it still was a time away from them that I had dedicated to give. So you know, I know anybody that's struggling with this, that's a very hard one. But the bottom line is that I I have a disease. You know, like any disease, if I don't treat it, it's going to get worse. So, you know, I had to do it for me is basically what I'm trying to say. Thank you. Thank you very much, Nancy R., for the question. Mary Lee. Good morning, everyone. Wow, thank you so much for being of service, all of you. My question um has been answered in various ways, but I'm, I'm still going to throw out. Um, I'm about to be in a situation where three of us um, in the same family are going to be in the same um, living space um, for two weeks, and I just would love some tips um, about 
from anyone about not being taken verbal hostage. I really love the idea of um, bless them, change me. I can say that over and over and over, but I need to listen with compassion and yet not feel like I'm being taken verbal hostage. And I'm just so grateful to be in recovery. I don't know. Can anyone get something out of that question? (laughs) This is Rachel. Um, I could take a stab. Please go ahead, Rachel. Okay. Um, Yeah. Wow. I really relate to what you're asking. Um, Well, you said, you know, bless them, change me. The set aside prayer works. Um, And reaching out to to others, you know, I I think it's really important when I'm in that situation like that to to not change anything about my self-care. And I think it's the self-care part is is really important. Whatever your daily practice is when you wake up, like not to sabotage your own, you know, self-care. Um, because I think the more that we give ourselves, the more we can kind of tolerate from other people. Just to make sure that you're, obviously the food is in place and the spiritual emotional parts, your program are in place. And, and know that you can reach out, you know, when it gets... Uh, when the going gets tough. And um, that's all I have to say, just to keep keeping those things in mind and, and turning to your higher power as much as necessary. Um, I, I was by a big book study recently, and um, this woman was talking about 10-step, and she was saying that, uh, you know, she doesn't, uh, she doesn't call anybody for a 10-step because she feels like that precludes her relationship with her higher power. So for her, she just, she 10 steps to her higher power. <laughs> so, you know, you could perhaps uh, try that as well. And I hope that helps. Oh, that's an excellent stellar idea because I won't have access to telephone and I'll be in the same room and I do have my pen and paper and thank you. I like that. Yeah, well, my, my sponsor, in those situations, my sponsor always says, you have everything you need. Thank you very much, Mary Lee, for the question. Anyone else with questions today? This will be the final invitation. So please take advantage if you wish to do so. Star one to unmute to identify yourself. This is Joy. Joy. One one moment. Anyone else? Suji. Suji. Carolyn S.H. And Carolyn S.H. Okay. All right, Joy, please go ahead with your question. Okay, thank you. Um, Well, someone mentioned a couple times the set-aside prayer and also the fear prayer. I think it was the second speaker. Um, Is that right? Rachel, um, and I just wondered where to find those, please. That's it. Okay, thank you, Rachel W. Yes, oh, 
So the set-aside prayer um, is not in the big book, as far as I know. Anybody that knows better than that could please correct me, but I don't think that's in the big book. Um, um, the set-aside prayer was, as far as I know, just someone created it. I mean, other prayers, they all, people also created the other ones, but, you know, it, it's not, I don't think it's part of the big book text ex- itself. Um, the fear prayer, I, I'm not sure exactly what page it's on. Um, page 68 that, that talks about our fear and, um, also, I mean, I, I got the fear prayer from my, from the sheets. I use the, the Lori sheets, the big book, the big book inventory that he has. Um, so I got the prayer, the, you know, I got my fear prayer from that. Um, who, who is so that? If anybody, uh, oh, so first of all, page 68 discusses the fear inventory and talks about how we ask God to remove our fear. And that, that alone is the prayer. Like we can just remove our fear and direct my attention to what I, he would have me be. That is basically the prayer. But if there's a more official version of that anywhere, if anybody can step in and let me know, that would be great. But that is the fear prayer. Um, but there are other there are other um, sources and versions. On um, the Lori C has a big book study. He has a big book download that has a fear inventory sheet that you can actually use to to take your fear through and process. Um, okay, thank you. Yeah, it's just to remove my fear and direct my attention to what he would have me be. Exactly, page 68 in the big book. Thank you, Joy, for the questions. Thank you. Sue G. Good morning. Thank you for your service, ladies. Um, I thought I heard in the third speaker something about, I didn't quite understand, something about sometimes things don't change. Um, And I'm thinking about, uh, anybody can answer this, is that when the family does not change, when um, when they remain the irritant, <laughs> the uh, where your resentment continues to come from, where your fear continues to come from, where it reoccurs whenever you seem to have contact or with the husband, you, you know, you live with them. And I'm wondering if it's a lack of, Spirituality on my part still, I've been in program for years, but I've only been recovered for uh, going on one year. Um, Or if it's something where you just have to accept that they are what they are and and pray the sick man's prayer and and pray for them for two weeks. Um, That's it. Thank you. Um, Hi, this is Kathy. Um, One of my take a quick attempt and somebody else can jump in as well. Um, I think um, where, where it comes down to that you can't expect others to change is in the big book, it, it starts out and there's a comment that says that I need to keep my side of the street clean. And what that means is, is that I am in control of me and my relationship with God and how I live my life but I can't force my 
people around me to change from pessimist to optimist. I can't um, force them to stop using curse words. I can tune it out, but I can't force change upon them or tell them that they have to behave in a certain way. And there are people in my life who I'm not going to banish from my life because of their behavior, but I can change my approach and how I do it. And when I'm feeling a resentment, that is a red flag for some fourth-step thinking and some major 10-step work because the resentment is coming with within me. It isn't coming from within them, and I'm stewing that fire. I'm, 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 I'm putting lighter fluid on it, and I'm getting ready to strike the match. And the problem is if I strike the match, what ends up happening at the end game of my resentment is I jump back into the bath of addiction. I don't jump into the warm, amazing whirlpool of recovery. I go back to addiction where it's cold, it's scary, it's dark, and and the fire burns out of control. So it's a choice I make. But if I come to the, what I find just in general is, if I come to the table with the glasses half full, rather than the glasses half empty, my whole aura around me changes and directly or indirectly it takes a situation that might not be great to begin with keeps it from getting worse and keeps it from deteriorating and with all of that being said I also need to understand my limitations there are times when I am like totally pumped up and ready to go and my gas tank is full and I'm better able to deal with these people who are not the best they tend to push my buttons easier and I work with it. But there are times when I got to understand I'm tired, I'm frustrated. My, I'm just, just, I don't have it within me to pump myself up to get moving. And then I, then I have to step back and say, you know, not today, do what I got to do to get through the immediate situation. And then it's time for me to step out. It's time for me to duck out. It's time to me to close this down as quickly as possible and move on because if I don't then I'm on to my resentments and then I'm back in addiction so that's just me um, personally Um, if anybody else wants to jump in because there's many ways to deal with this thank you Kathy S did any other panelists want to respond as well this is Deb W go ahead Deb hi um yeah, I, I like that question. That's a good question. And and, and a lot of times it's, I've been baffled by um, the behaviors of my family, especially since I've made all these changes and gotten so much better. But i got to remember the years that I made the changes, are they basically shorter than the years that they've lived with me being one way? You know, when, when mama's not happy, nobody's happy, you know, and they based the way they felt that day on how I got up that morning. And so, you know, there, like it says in the big book, there's going to be a lot of hurt, you know, there's going to be a lot of hurt. And then our personalities are what they were before I got recovery. And so, you know, if I have a family member that is mean or grouchy or whatever, they're going to be mean and grouchy after I got recovery. You know, I really think that there are very few times that I look at a situation where we've had a a problem, a struggle, and I was involved that I couldn't link back to something I 
you know, had some part in. And and once I get that, once I can get there and hold on to that and go work the program with just that little piece of my part in it, then it helps, like it says the story about, you know, uh, Max and the glasses, you know. It helps me to see things differently. And, you know, me seeing things differently can stop the ball from rolling into a bigger difficulty. You know, I can't change people. And there are sometimes my daughter's personalities, they really, you know, are trying but I can do a lot to ease the situation. And my expectations on what things are like, are going to be like, or what they're like, you know, my family members are like, have a lot to do with it too. You know, lowering my expectations raises my serenity. Basically, I'm trying to get serene, you know, and stay serene. I can't afford to get off into the highs and the lows because the next thing my mind's going to tell me is about one delicious piece of comfort that I used to have. And, you know, and then it's going to suggest whether I want to try it again. So I'm so emotionally tied to the disease that I have to stay in the recovery. And so if that means I have to step away from a grouchy family member, if it, that means I have to let people be who they are, then, then I'm willing to do that. So thank you. Hi, this is Rachel. Can I step in or Please have time? Do. Or oh, yeah. I also yeah. That's it's a great it's a great question. And I think for me, um, you know, I would be fooling myself if I said that you know everything's perfect now and that I respond perfectly now. I think that you know what I what I have to keep in mind is, is that I'm still growing and I'm still learning how to respond to to my family to different situations. Um, you know, the miracle today isn't, you know, it, 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 it's, 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 um, you know, yes, there have been changes, but I would say that, you know, it's, it, it, this, this, the scene is the same, you know, the people are exactly the same. My relatives are exactly the same and some of the issues are still there, but definitely what's, what's changed is, is my response to those situations. And part of that is, is absolutely just as, as um, Deb and Kathy said so beautifully, I just want to add to what they said, because I think they said it all. Um, is the more that I can work on accepting myself and accepting um, situations, not in the way that I have to just deny my emotions about it, but just live in the acceptance that this is just how it is. This is what it is. And what Deb just said about contributing to different situations is so it's so key because I I also wreaked havoc when I was in my food addiction, you know, living living that way. So there's a lot to untangle, but it, it's more, it's, it is progress, not perfection. It is, you know, not expecting everybody to be, to be perfect, but also um, not, not tolerating, you know, intolerable situations necessarily, but just knowing how to um, hold myself and, and not respond and know that food is not, obviously, you know, food is not the option today. It's not even on the radar today to, to respond to situations like that of, um, different situations or people not changing. Um, but I definitely will tell you that the more I've gone inside and I've brought these steps into myself and aligned myself into these steps, there have been changes um, externally in the family that I'm related to. So it, there is hope for that, but I don't count on that because that's not my, you know, my, that's not, the results are up to God. Everything I do 
is, you know, what I'm in control of here is just my response to life. And I, again, have to align myself in the steps to, to have that proper response. Anything else, the outcome is left up to God and it's not about me. But so thank you for the question. Well, I'm going to share. Thank you, Sue G. And our final question this morning comes from Carolyn S.H. Hi, good morning, Leah. Can I be heard? Yes. Hi, good morning. Uh, Carolyn S.H. from Massachusetts. And I have a pretty broad question for uh, any and all panelists, um, whatever we have time for. Um, And I'm going to start by saying uh, a thank you to all three of you and also to you, Leah, um, for having all three of them because the interplay of the different themes um, all within that chapter, Family Afterwards, is... um, uh, has been really enlightening to me. And I'm wondering, um, for each person, um, is there, do you see a difference in the way that you work your program or the way that you understand a part of this chapter that you spoke about with respect to um, differentiating the uh, family of origin, you know, um, siblings and parents, from your family now, your husband and your children? Um, the way that you apply the steps, the way that you apply your recovery, the the relationship, um, the way that you are in those relationships, um, I'd be interested to hear. Panelists, is, one is would my like question to clear? Thank you, Carolyn S.H., I believe so. Okay. Um. Leah, I can jump in and tee it up, and then I'd love to hear everybody else's response. Sure, please do, Kathy, yes. Um, um, in my family of origin, um, my, um, my, my maternal side was fraught with addiction, um, and um, they um, apparently lost their um, ID cards to the local 12-step program, which greatly impacted my my, our family atmosphere. In some ways, it was like being raised by dry drunks, and um, and it was very volatile. Things flipped on a dime, um, and it was there was this undercurrent of 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 things flipping at the least possible moment, and very um, unpredictable. And when I started, when I was in addiction, I was bringing forth the same message to my family. Since I've entered in recovery, things have taken um, a complete and different approach. Things, first and foremost, are calm. They are not people screaming at each other, yelling at each other, um, this crazy lunacy. And it, it's, it, it's a more loving, gentler environment and a more patient and understanding environment. And Am I perfect at it? Oh, gosh, no. I wish I was better. I wish I was so much better. And I wish sometimes I wish I had a do-over button with the kids so I could do certain years over because I think now I've got a lot more insight. But it is what it is. And I do, you know, I really try first and foremost is to make a living amends. And the living amends is to step back, reassess my behavior, and say to myself how to do it better. And it, it, it's on the working process, just like anybody else. Some days are better than others, but we're definitely on a much better road and a much better journey than where where I grew up. And let me pass it on to the other other people because I'm sure they've got a lot of insight on this as well. 
This is Deb W. Please go ahead, Deb. You know, when I hear that question, I think of a lot of things. It's a good question. Um, um, I think with the family of origin, I have had less change that I could see uh, because they were the family of origin. And I know that I inspire my family. It got to, to be where my recovery helped, I believe, in the way we related to each other. Uh, I, I stopped trying to change them to agree with me, to see my way of things, because that's what I spent most of my time doing in the disease. I, I, I succeeded if they agreed with me. Well, I didn't know a lot of times they were agreeing with me just to get me to shut up. But the family of origin, um, you know, we didn't, we aren't the same family of origin, I don't believe, when we're up in our 50s and, you know, because the family of origin that I remember is when we were kids. And I kept that thought that they are the same people that grew up to be young adults, you know, that left home, that thought the way I thought because I was raised in the same household. Well, guess what? They didn't think the way I thought. They didn't see things the way I saw, and they chose their own paths and directions. So what I did tend to do, learn to do in program is let them be who they were. And, you know, I have a brother that, you know, we are cordial now, but we really are not when I finally got rid of that idea that, you know, that was the little brother that I was so close to and he loves me and I love him, which is true, we love each other, but he didn't like me as much as I thought he did. So what I knew of a family of origin does not exist, I don't believe. This is just my thought once we grow up because these are all individuals that have different thoughts and different attitudes, different resentments, different whatever. So the biggest effect I think I had, it was on my own family. I had my kids come to me and say, Mom, I am so glad you continued to go to those meetings because, you know, I can see a difference. But the difference that they see is in me and what I've done for myself. They didn't say, I can see the difference that you made on me. They saw, I can see the difference in the way you became. And with that, I pass. Thank Hi, you. Rachel. Oh, yes. Yeah. Sorry. Mm-hmm. Rachel W. All right, great. Thank you. And um, it's such an honor to be here and to listen to these other two panelists. Um, but for me, um, you know, I, I I look at it like, you know, it wouldn't make sense if I didn't become an addict. Like given my childhood, <laughs> it makes total sense that I, I turned into that addict. I was that tornado that we read about in the big book that um, everybody's, you know, just saying, oh, I'm, and I'm thinking, well, there's, what's the chaos? Yeah, I'm okay. And just everyone, you know, sh- you know, shuddering when I came in the room. I'm sure, I mean, no one ever told me this specifically, but I'm sure in my food addiction when I was 265 pounds and eating meant everything to me. I have no doubt that I sucked the energy out of the room. I, I have no doubt that I was having this effect on my family. And um, it's it's with compassion that I say this, that I know that it was as a result of, of the hurt and the pain of, of my um, home of origin. Um, however, looking at my life today, it's, it's, it's a life I never, ever expected that, that, um, that after the, 
after the food was put down, after the food was put down, I could actually start seeing myself. And that process of leaning into these steps uh, made me be able to see other people more clearly as well. And um, that resulted in, um, you know, my, my, the home that I have today, which I'm not saying it's a perfect family unit, like a per- perfect picture, but it's, it's, it's a, it's a beautiful picture. It's a, it's a, it's a, um, it's a different picture. It's, it's one where, you know, I grew up in, um, in, in a lot of denial, as I mentioned before. So part of you know, the growth in my process where I'm today with my family is living in reality. And um, I do have one of my children that does struggle with food addiction that um, I had an open conversation with him, like just, you know, openly talking about it. And um, I've had other, you know, I, I, I strive to live, like we, we talk about our problems. We can talk about our issues that we're not afraid when we shouldn't, I don't want them to be afraid to come to me with their stuff. Like, like I, I was when I was younger, you know, like I, I didn't, I don't, I want that for my children that they should be able to come to me. And, um, I recently had a really good conversation with one of my children, my older children, where I actually apologized to her because, you know, I, I realized like many years ago, I was so checked out. I said, you know, I really wish I could have given you more. And, and she said to me, she said, you know, um, you know, I, I, I know it, it, it's, 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 um, you know, I get, I thank you, you know, whatever we, she accepted my apology, but she said, you know, and, and I said, well, I don't even know what I could even do for you now. I mean, we, now are, you know, we have a good relationship and we've always had a good relationship, but um, I said, you know, what, what can I even do? And she said, you know, just keep doing what you're doing. Just keep doing what you're doing because I, I see the effect it has on the home and on the younger kids. And it's, it's just, it's beautiful. And so I just want to give that also as a, as a, as a sense of, of hope, you know, for people with older kids that, you know, the kids, they're still our kids, even though they're older, we could always have, you know, strive to have better relationships with all of our children. But it sounds so simple, you know, put down the food, do these steps and, and heal your family. But you know what, that's exactly what happens. And it's, 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 it's a totally different, it's a totally different life. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you, Carolyn S.H., for your question. Thank you to all who posed questions this morning. And, of course, thank you to our three panelists, Deb W., Rachel W., Kathy S. Thank you for the wealth of experience and wisdom that you offered through your personal insights and trudging this road of happy destiny by utilizing the 12 Steps of the program of recovery. And we'll now close from page 164. Our book is meant to be suggestive only. We realize we know only a little. God will constantly disclose more to you and to us. Ask him in your morning meditation what you can do each day for the man who is still sick. The answers will come if your own house is in order. But obviously you cannot transmit something you haven't got. See to it that your relationship with him is right and great events will come to pass for you and countless others. This is a great fact for us. Abandon yourself to God as you understand God. Admit your faults to him and to your fellows. Clear away the wreckage of your past. Give freely of what you find and join us. We shall be with you in the fellowship of the Spirit and you will surely meet some of us as you trudge the road of happy destiny. May God bless you and keep you until then.